The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. And would you stand and join me for the reading of God's Word? It says this, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, everyone. Uh, If you don't know me, I am Pastor Scott. And uh, it's my great privilege this morning to bring you the Word of God. Um, Let's start with prayer. Lord, whenever we come into your Word, we're most inclined to think that we're here to consider you and consider your story and your ways. And there's some truth to that, but also the reality is that you are weighing us. And you are acting upon us. And that's a very good thing. So this morning we welcome the spotlight of your word upon our hearts. And we also invite you, Holy Spirit, to bring us true joy as we remember that the true light has come into the world. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we pray that you would overcome the darkness in our lives this morning. The glory of Christ. Amen. Now sometimes it takes attention from outsiders to make the insiders notice what they've been overlooking. So in a recent episode of The Crown... Uh, British Prime Minister Tony Blair reaches the height of his popularity only after winning President Clinton's support of his foreign policy goals because the insiders needed the testimony of an influential outsider 
to help them see the diplomatic skill that was there all along. Or an example closer to home. My wife directs the adult education department of a refugee resettlement agency. And in just a year and a half, if you don't mind me boasting, she has completely turned around a herding program. Now, the executives in her own organization, they hadn't taken much notice, but they were forced to after she recently won some accolades from the state oversight board, which then attracted partnership from the wealthiest community college in the nation. So sometimes it takes attention from outsiders to make the insiders appreciate a good thing. Now, when I was a child at Christmas, I have memories of lying under my grandparents' large balsam tree at night, and all the lights in the room would be turned off except for on the Christmas tree. And I would stare up, and hanging on one of the lowest branches, there were three shiny metallic ornaments, probably from the 1940s, depicting the magi on their camels. And I would stare up at those wise men, and I would just be struck by the strangeness of it all and the wonder, like, where had they come from? And why, exactly? Why were these mysterious outsiders such an important part of the story of the newborn king of Israel? To me, it was one of the most beautiful aspects of the nativity, but I couldn't quite articulate why. So hopefully today, we'll get further along in our understanding of why the Magi were divinely written into the story of our Lord's arrival. And perhaps there are outsiders here today who will learn to see what the Magi saw. Or maybe there are insiders here today who will finally notice just how much they've taken for granted. In this text, we're going to see four possible responses to the person of Jesus Christ. And everyone in this room will fall into one of these four categories. So let's find out which one you're in, and then we'll have the opportunity to ask, is that really where we want to be? So verse 1 starts, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So just as after. We don't know how long after Jesus was born that this happened, but uh, we should be aware this isn't technically a Christmas story. Down in verse 16, we see that it could have even been up to two years since Jesus' birth. So if we assume that the star appeared at the moment of Jesus' birth, then it would have taken a significant amount of time in those days to journey from the east, at least four months probably. And in verse 11, they find Jesus with his mother in the house. So the family had certainly moved on from the stable. Now it seems that they have a proper house in Bethlehem. Maybe they were planning to relocate there permanently, or maybe they just found some uh, temporary residence until Jesus was a bit older for the journey back to Nazareth. Well, I hope that um, this timing doesn't mess with you too much. I know it it probably ruined, it might feel like it's ruining your nativity scenes, or, um, you know, maybe some Christmas movies that you hold dear to your heart. I hate to break it to you, the, the wise men were not there on the first night with the shepherds. I can't really help um, how that messes with you, but I think it's fine if you want to leave the wise men in your nativity scene, right? it'll, It'll help you to remember all this did happen in Bethlehem in Jesus' first one to two years of life. And uh, this was in the days of Herod the king, known to history as Herod the Great. He ruled Judea as a regional king in service to the Roman Empire. Herod was, how do I put this? not a nice man. He was actually only half Jewish. He 
wasn't religious at all. He wasn't very Hebrew. His family was thoroughly Greek in culture. He was a puppet for Rome, but they gave him a lot of leeway to rule any way he wanted, and the way he ruled was with cruelty. He tried to win the trust of the Jews by making their religious leaders rich and then by renovating and expanding the temple. And there was another, a number of other construction projects, uh, public works that he did accomplish. Herod was shrewd and he was cunning. And uh, because of the tenuousness of his political situation, he was very, very paranoid, probably even a little mad. On just suspicion of betrayal, he had his favorite wife and three of his sons executed. He also planned to have hundreds of Jewish leaders executed on the day of his own death. I don't know, maybe just so they wouldn't wish for his death too much. Uh, when you think about a person like this, you can imagine his reaction when, as we read, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They're looking for one born king of the Jews, unlike Herod, who had violently seized the role of king. So Herod would definitely have been alarmed by this question. Now some background about wise men. The Greek is magi. You can see the connection to our own word magic. We say magi usually. The, the magi were a priestly caste from Babylonia or Persia. They were experts in a blend of astronomy and astrology. They were philosophers. They were scholars of magic books. They were into the interpretation of dreams. Now, all that might sound a little primitive to us, but guys like this were found in the courts of all ancient kingdoms. Sure, many of them were tricksters and cheats, but uh, many others were genuinely seeking truth and made a number of pseudoscientific observations and could actually be wise royal counselors. Now, Matthew's original readers at this point, at the mention of magi or, or people like them, their minds would probably go to at least three uh, Old Testament passages. One is in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, magi figure prominently there in the court of Babylon. And these magi are likely descended from that same tradition, which, if you think about it, um, the magi in Babylon would have heard a lot about the God of Israel from Daniel four centuries before this time. But even here in Jesus' day, there was still a large Jewish population in Babylon that had not returned to the land after exile. So that would have given these magi ample opportunity to have access to the Hebrew scriptures. And the Jewish mind would also associate magi or magicians with Pharaoh's court in the time of the Exodus. You remember going through Exodus together and um, there, one of the early showdowns between um, Moses and Pharaoh, the magicians come in and they were able to intimidate the wonders that were performed by Moses to a point. But then they were eventually forced to acknowledge, this is the hand of Yahweh. But then most relevant of all, would have been an episode from the book of Numbers, chapter 24. There, a pagan magician named Balaam had been hired by Israel's enemies to pronounce curses on them as they passed by in the wilderness. And three times, Balaam attempts to do this, but each time as he attempts to curse them, a blessing comes out of his mouth instead. And he tells the king of Moab who hired him, I, I don't have any choice. I don't have any control over it. And then he gives a fourth and final word to the king of Moab, saying, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, 
the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. His enemies shall be dispossessed, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. So three Old Testament contexts in which magician, wise men of different flavors had attempted to thwart God's people, and yet in each case, God got glory over these weak pagan attempts at transcendence. But here in Matthew 2, we have something different. We, we have magi actually seeking the king of Israel. They're not trying to thwart Israel. They're seeking the king of Israel. And they're being prompted to do so by a star in seeming fulfillment of Balaam's oracle about a star coming out of Jacob. Now, in the ancient world, stars were often seen as linked to rulers. So historians um, would, would mention astrological signs as linked to big events like the death of Julius Caesar or the birth of Caesar Augustus. And you may be asking, yes, but how could a star rise? We, we know something about stars. They don't really rise. Um, so one thing you should know is that this word translated star can mean any luminous astronomical phenomenon. It can, it can be stars, it can be planets, comets, meteors, and so different theories have emerged for what this actually was. Was it a confluence of, of three planets coming together? Was it a supernova, a faint star that violently explodes and gives off enormous amounts of light for a few weeks or months? We just don't have enough information to know for sure. And that's not the main point anyway, right? If God became man, there are far greater mysteries here at work than how exactly he got the attention of these stargazers. We should ask, though, is this validating finding meaning in the stars? Is that how God wants people to perceive the meaning of the times through astrology and omens in the sky? No. Listen to how God in Isaiah 47 mocks all that the Magi would have been about. He says, Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. So if that's how God feels about stargazing, well, what's going on here with this star rising and the meaning behind it? Well, God is mercifully speaking their language so as to draw them into true revelation. And our gracious God does this all the time. There are countless stories of devout Muslims coming to Christ through dreams that they received in response to their prayers to Allah. There are stories of people being confronted and instructed by God during a trip on drugs. Now, does this mean that we should commend the practice of Islam or dropping acid as pathways to Christ? No, of course not. We should, we should celebrate God's unexpected mercy, but we shouldn't test it. He has a normative way in which his spirit consistently draws people to Christ, and that's through this very book that we're studying right now.
But let's get back to the story. As we might expect, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. You could say he was in turmoil. He was greatly agitated. He was no stranger to the Jewish messianic prophecies. So either he believes them or half believes them, and he, and he hates the idea of the rise of a king who would compromise his own rule, or he doesn't believe the prophecies, but he hates the idea of others trying to elevate someone other than himself as a supposed messiah. So Herod represents the first type of person, the first type of response that a person could have toward Jesus Christ. He is an overt enemy of God, an agent of Satan. He hopes to preserve his own perceived supremacy by slaying the true king. So people in the pattern of Herod worship self-determination. They hate God's work in Jesus, even if it could be on their behalf. They mock the faith. They seek to hurt the people of Christ, not even respecting their dignity as humans. And this type of person isn't beyond the reach of salvation. Their eyes can be opened, just as the Apostle Paul's were. But if left to their schemes, the Christ-haters will keep heaping God's judgment upon themselves. That's the first response we could have to Jesus. Now, not only Herod was troubled, but we read that also all Jerusalem with him. Why should all of Jerusalem be troubled? They live in the city where the Messiah would come to light and, and from which he would bless all the nations. So why should they not long for his arrival? For some reason, they are implicit sympathizers with Herod. Maybe they fear Herod more than they fear God. If Herod's power were threatened, what would that mean for them? Would he go on a fierce killing spree? Maybe it was just safer to maintain the status quo. Or maybe the concern is mostly financial. Maybe this is the crowd that has benefited from Herod's kingship. And so this Messiah talk, even though it's part of their cultural tradition, it could cause some costly chaos if it goes too far. So they're troubled. They don't want a Messiah enough for him to cause them any trouble. And most in our society fall into this camp. They're not hateful or opposed to the Christian tradition or to cultural concepts of the faith, so long as it isn't allowed in any way to burden them. And this stance may seem like it's more civil than the first one, but it might even be more dangerous for the soul. Because those who are overtly opposed to Christ, at least they instinctually understand the power that the idea of Christ in this world bears. But those in camp number two who are troubled because of the possible change of their plans for safety or prosperity, these people have zero faith that the Messiah could actually be their true source of safety or source of human flourishing. To them, paltry powers like Herod just seem more convincing. And we're the same way whenever we're kept from following Jesus because of what other people would think or how it might compromise our social or romantic or employment options. So at some level, we have to decide, we all have to decide which is more certain, more rewarding to respond to Christ or to guard our status quo in this world. And it would be the greatest kindness to you if God were to poke holes in your personal system of self-protection and self-justification until you were able to see the goodness of taking refuge in Jesus, God's appointed king. In order to guard 
that status quo and to lash out at this emerging king, Herod needs some more information. So assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, these are two opposing groups of Jewish leaders. The chief priests were those who were more in Herod's pocket. The scribes, on the other hand, were strict adherents to the Jewish law. They would have despised Herod's rule. But Herod, always the shrewd customer, brings them both together. He doesn't want to miss out on any possible insight. And, of course, they do agree. They give him a straightforward answer from the book of Micah, chapter 5. The answer is Bethlehem. The same town where King David was born a thousand years earlier. The same town where Ruth met Boaz. The same town whose name means house of bread is exactly where the bread of life would be born. Now interestingly, this is the last we hear from these chief priests and scribes in this passage. You would think they would be more involved. If all Jerusalem was troubled by the question of these magi, then certainly these religious leaders knew why Herod was asking this question. And yet we don't read that they were excited or that they followed the magi to Bethlehem. They know from their own answer the shepherdly quality of the coming Christ, that he would be a better king than Herod. Micah says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. These are amazing promises, potentially coming to fruition just then, and Bethlehem is only five miles away. And yet we don't read of any of them leaving Jerusalem to locate the Christ child. Instead, the chief priests and the scribes represent a third possible response to the person of Jesus Christ. They know the word of God, but it doesn't change them. And this is a warning to us that you can know the Holy Scriptures forward and backward and yet not really know Jesus. You can quote the Bible and be dry and unresponsive. And to that, Jesus would grow up to say, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So, members of the Source Church, we have to ask ourselves, do I know all about Jesus from Scripture, and yet don't truly pursue him? Don't truly feel my need of him? Don't worship him with the orientation of my heart? Jesus did not come to earth to be known about. He came to be known, to be trusted, to be followed, to be treasured. So if your inner being is not soft and open to him today, just stop everything else. Stop the holidays until you get to that place. He doesn't need you to amass more knowledge about him before you're willing to disrupt and and change according to what you already know. Respond to him now. Surrender to him. Love him. Move from the detached, consumeristic discipleship that you've crafted for yourself and make it a matter for your whole heart. 
So the gift of outsiders like the Magi to us is that they show us how little we've been willing to give, how little we've been willing to move for the worship of Christ. Likely they were traveling over 1,600 miles as the song visualizes over field and fountain, moor and mountain. They had this risky journey that puts us in our apathy to shame. And the same is true when you look at the journey of outsiders who are coming to Christ today, those who are coming to Christ from a distance, so to speak, from historically non-Christian contexts. These people are particularly vulnerable. One in seven Christians in the world today is persecuted. In 2023, more than 4,500 Christians have been thrown in prison. 2,110 churches have been attacked. 5,621 Christians have been killed for their faith. And we know from our Bibles that such trials are appointed. And we can confirm for these programs that they're on the right path. And yet we struggle to get up and travel the five miles to Bethlehem. To love the difficult person in our life. To suffer the change of our plans. To use our resources differently. To find joy in unexpected hardships. Living in Jerusalem so to speak. We've grown quite accustomed to worship being convenient and not unsettling us. And the danger of this actual indifference to Christ should alarm us because as we will see in the Gospel of Matthew, all true Christianity is a risky journey. It's a risky journey with a sure reward. The Magi, on their risky journey, they were more vulnerable than they even knew. The enemy of God had lost no time in in devising a scheme. Verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Spoiler alert, if you read verses 12 through 18, it's quite clear that Herod wasn't sincere. Uh, We might wonder why Herod, who had this firm grasp on the kingdom, why does he even bother for a plot here? Well, ancient belief in astrological signs was widespread, and Herod's friends were all pretty much friends he'd bought. So this paranoid tyrant turns his attention to a baby of all possible threats. If you think about it, if, if a child really was the Messiah, how could he be stopped? And if he really wasn't the Messiah, or if Herod didn't even believe in a Messiah, which is more likely, then why harm innocent children and further risk unpopularity? So you see, Herod's fear makes him foolish, and that's really true of all sin, right? We are afraid of losing something or missing out on a good thing. And so we rashly act to secure it or to protect it for ourselves over and against the way that God has prescribed And that insistence on self-determination then becomes our very undoing. But the story that God is writing marches on. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Let me say just a little bit more about this star because in our culture, it's, it's almost become kind of cartoonish. Like the star is just right there and it's going in front of them. Uh, note that this verse is the first time we're told that the star is moving. The star is said to move. So we don't know that it did before that. 
Okay, but even if it's moving just from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, what gives? Stars don't move, right? Or, or even if it's one of those other things that we mentioned, like a comet or a meteor or whatever, those don't exactly move in a way that could be perceived as any specific guidance, uh, certainly across five miles. So what's going on here? Again, let me just emphasize, like, we have this interest in the star. Uh, that's the, most, the thing that we're drawn to the most. I'm not sure it's the center of what Matthew is trying to say. I think he might summarize saying, look, God got the attention of some stargazers in a supernatural way and made sure that they ended up in Bethlehem. That's what you need to believe. That's what matters. So one idea is that they saw something unusual in the sky that according to their arts of stargazing, it, it signaled to them that the promised ruler of the Hebrew scriptures had been born. And so they traveled to Jerusalem, which is where you would find a newborn king of Israel. He wasn't there. And once they've done, they've finished their conversation with Herod, they're on their way to Bethlehem. Maybe an angel took over at that part, kind of imitating the phenomenon that they had seen earlier, but descending closer and, and moving along the way. And maybe that's exactly why they get so excited because they start to understand that they are being quite intentionally and specifically and divinely led. Or maybe the phenomenon had been an angel or, or some uniquely appointed vision all along. We just don't know. But the main point of this experience, the main point is what's going on with the devotion of the Magi to this unknown king. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And here we start to see the fourth possible response to the person of Jesus Christ. Worship. Worship in the inner being. Worship that results in deep and authentic joy. Joy is a telltale sign of a true encounter with Christ. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They literally bowed themselves, prostrated themselves before the Christ child. Now, by worship, does it mean that they understood everything about Jesus, that he is divine, that he is, he is very God in human flesh? Maybe, if they had followed the clues carefully through the scriptures, but also maybe not. It's possible that, like Israel, they would need to learn about the Messiah as his life unfolded. But for now, it would be enough for them to know that he was the promised king through whom blessing was destined to come to all nations. And even if they worshipped better than they knew, they were devoted to the right one. And all would become clear in time. And in the same way, Jesus receives the worship today of those who don't totally get him or all that he might mean for their lives, but they see enough to know that he's the way to the future that they need. And, and that's more than enough to get started. And as we prostrate our lives before him in simplicity, he is going to raise us up and we are going to spend the rest of our lives, we're going to spend eternity being given a tour of his glorious purposes. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 11 alludes to Isaiah 60, where it's prophesied that just like the delegation from Sheba brought gifts for King Solomon, so also gifts like gold and frankincense would be brought to a king greater than Solomon. And the fact that these gifts have found Jesus, even though he was born in obscurity, that should really highlight for us that this really is the promised cosmic king, the true son of David. 
They open their treasure chests. They bring out three gifts. Now, did the wise men intend any specific meaning behind their gifts? I have to say probably not. These were expensive gifts commonly traded among nobility throughout the ancient Near East. If you're wanting to honor a newborn king, gifts like this are exactly what one might expect. That doesn't mean, though, that God didn't orchestrate these gifts to put an exclamation point on certain aspects of Jesus' appointed role. Now, we all know what gold is. It's the most straightforward way to honor royalty. And I can't really improve on the lyrics of uh, the Christmas tune, We Three Kings, so I'm going to use those. Born a king in Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Now, frankincense we're probably less familiar with. It's a glittering, fragrant resin or gum that comes from making incisions in the bark of the boswellia tree, which I, I found out is um, it's like a balsam tree. So to let off its fragrance, frankincense is burned as incense. And in Exodus and in Leviticus, we see that frankincense was to be included with the grain offerings when they were burned to God in the tabernacle. So by its very nature, this gift spoke of divine presence and it was a fitting offering to God the Son who had become flesh and come to tabernacle among us. Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh, prayer and praising all men raising, worship him, God most high. The third gift, myrrh, is a spice gathered from a thorny tree found in Arabia, and it could be used in perfume mixtures, but it was also most frequently used in embalming, like when Nicodemus would eventually adorn the body of Jesus with myrrh in John chapter 19. So Jesus' mission was to lay down his life to reunite heaven and earth, and so it was a fitting way to honor him just like Jesus would say when he was anointed by the, the woman at Bethany with her perfume, she has prepared my body for burial. Now there are two places in the book of Matthew where Jesus is called king of the Jews. One is by the Magi in verse 2. The other is by Pilate in chapter 27 when he ironically hangs the sign on the cross that says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And so it's like bookends in Matthew and we see that in his death, Jesus is truly enthroned. And so the carol says, Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. So now we've taken in the whole scene with the journey of the Magi. What, what are we going to make of it? One scholar summarizes it all in this way. He says, The child whose birth is shrouded in suspicions of illegitimacy is in fact God's legitimate appointee. On the other, hands, on the other hand, the legal rulers, both the political ones and the religious ones, by their clinging to positions of power and prestige, they prove themselves to be illegitimate in God's eyes. Sadly, the church in many ages has perpetuated this pattern. Meanwhile, God often chooses to reveal himself to pagans, at times even in the midst of their religious practices, to lead them on to the full truth found only in Christ. 
So the question for us this morning isn't what's your church background or do you feel a need for Christ? The question is, how will you respond to the divine ruler who demands your allegiance and is making all things new? The effectiveness of Jesus' royal work on the cross was confirmed through his resurrection and victory. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, heaven to earth replies. How will you respond? Will you, like Herod, worship self-rule and hate God's work? Will you, like the general people of Jerusalem, live afraid of what following Christ could mean? And so you respond with a purposeful avoidance. Will you, like the religious elite, know all about this Christ, but live in complacency? Or will you, like these happy outsiders, draw near and give glory to your true king? The Magi knew far less about this Messiah, but they acted on what they did know, and they offered him the best gifts they had. And maybe you are a Magi. Maybe you've tried a little of this, tried a little of that, looked for magic everywhere, from religion to drugs, guidance everywhere, from self-help books to horoscopes. Will you now join the pagans and the outsiders who come to adore Jesus? If so... You'll find belonging in a kingdom that transcends all ethnicities and classes, one that crosses all time, and your story will become part of the great story to your exceeding joy. And if you have been a complacent insider, one who has on paper been waiting for the king but actually has been happy in your little self-protected kingdom, now is the moment to turn around. Humble yourself and learn from those considering Jesus for the first time. Will King Jesus be allowed to displace you and to receive from you the most precious of what you've been holding back? If so, then tomorrow you'll really have something to celebrate. God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for all the gifts around Jesus, that, like the magi who point to him. You've made it perfectly clear to us through your word who Jesus is, what he has done. And we see the truth of that playing out in the lives of those around us, in our own lives. We see it across history. We thank you for the gift of Christ. And Jesus, we acknowledge that all authority belongs to you. We acknowledge that you have purchased with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so you deserve the allegiance of all people everywhere. Lord, we ask that no part of our lives would escape from that allegiance that we joyfully give today and every day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.